Father, we have opened your word. It is a holy word. It dropped from holy lips. It is a savory word. It pleases the tongue. It is a living word. It has power to bring life. It is a timely word. There are 3,000 years separating this text from our Mondays, but your word is never out of date. It was written as a timeless word. Help us to receive it as a light unto our path. Come work repentance into our souls. Do not allow us to be blinded to our sin. For those of us who have by degrees lost a sense of your weightiness and majesty, restore it this day. Grant an intense hunger to eat your word. Confirm in us this day that it is a sustaining word. Sustain your church through this exposition. And Lord, do it for the glory of your name among the nations. Even though we are in familiar territory today, help it to land on us fresh. Help us not to rush to the end of the story, but marinate in the tension. Please take this text and use it to embolden your frightened children, to wake up your sleeping children, to steady your staggering children, and to bring into your fold new children. Do this among us for the praise of your glory. Amen. Every minute of every day for the last three and a half years, Yahweh has been stealing Baal's rain. Baal was the Canaanite storm god. If your garden needed rain, you gave an animal to the Baal priest and they slew and sacrificed it and Baal sent you rain in return. Three and a half years ago, Elijah told King Ahab and his serpent wife Jezebel that there would be no rain in the land until he said so. So, for three and a half years, the people have been praying to Baal to send the rain. And he wasn't delivering. This is bad press for Baal. But it only gets worse in this passage. Not only does God steal Baal's rain, he's about to steal Baal's thunder. Verse 1, and after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Let's stop here. The land is drought-stricken. The ground crusted and cracked. It's parched. It's a dust bowl. Everyone has chapped lips and dust in their teeth. The land is thirsty. It was a long, hot, dry three years. The ground baked like clay. The land brittle like saltine crackers. This drought, of course, led to the scarcity of food. Elijah has been hiding out in a widow's shack. They, they had God miraculously spread a buffet for every meal. God informs Elijah, I am going to send rain again. The danger, however, is that with the return of the rain, that would signal the return of Baal. The drought was interpreted as a sign that Baal had failed. But if the rain returns, the people would conclude Baal brought it. God could not allow that to happen. Baal must be discredited openly, unmistakably, publicly, embarrassingly, decisively, in living color, and on live stream. Here's some of the hooks on which to hang the narrative. A search for green grass, verses 1 through 19. The showdown at Mount Carmel, verses 20 through 46. The search for green grass, 1 through 19. 
the showdown at Mount Carmel, verses 20 through 46. I will drip a few truths throughout, but will wait until the end to give most of them. Between verses 2 and 3, the scene shifts from Elijah in the widow's house to Ahab in the king's palace. Verse 3. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. We are introduced for the first time to Obadiah. This was not Obadiah the prophet who has a book in the Old Testament. This is Obadiah the royal chief of staff. He held an important political post. He's the king's personal assistant. He's a high-ranking official in the king's palace. You don't get to Ahab without going through Obadiah. We also discover, to our utter shock and surprise, that he fears God. He's a Yahweh follower. Imagine finding a God follower inside the pagan palace. Yahweh has had an inside man the whole time. Now, notice at the end of verse 3, this parenthesis that continues through verse 4. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. We find out a lot about Obadiah's work as an inside man from this verse. Once the land went dry, once God cut off the faucet of heaven, Jezebel raged. That wicked queen started searching the land for Elijah to put him to death. In fact, she searched the land for any prophet of Yahweh and put them to death. Murdered them in cold blood. This was not ethnic cleansing, but a prophet cleansing. She's killing all the preachers. She went on a war path. When she doesn't get her reign, she retaliates. Obadiah, the Old Testament version of Cory Tenboom begins hiding the prophets of God out in caves. There were more than 2,000 caves in the limestone mountain region. Just like Elijah received bread and water from the mouth of the raven, these 100 prophets received bread and water from the hand of Obadiah. And God was the source of it all. They survived the massacre in Obadiah's hiding place. The prophets have gone underground. This is God's underground church. The people of God have often found themselves under persecution for remaining faithful to God. Following God can get you killed. Non-Christians, we are not calling you to something easy and light. Christians in China, East Africa, the Middle East, and India face persecution on the regular. They are attacked by communist governments, Muslims, Hindus. The wicked queen takes many forms. Non-Christian, come this way. But no, it will not be easy. You can have your sins forgiven, but you may have your hands cut off. Verse 5, And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. King Ahab, church, knows nothing about Obadiah's loyalties to Yahweh. Ahab thinks Obadiah is probably a Baal follower like everyone else in the palace. Neither the king nor the queen know anything about Obadiah's hidden disloyalty. Ahab thinks Obadiah is his ride or die. They decide to split up and search the land looking for a green patch anywhere. Already, two royal searches have taken place. A search for the prophets and a search for green grass. Everything is dead or dying. They depart in hopes of finding sufficient, sufficient provision for the animals. 
The drought has affected the vegetation of Israel, so there's no grazing, grazing pasture. If anyone has green grass in their yard, it will be commandeered for the royal stallions to eat. And you may think, oh, look at Ahab. He's an animal activist. He loves animals. Well, maybe he does. But don't forget, horses and chariots were his fighting force. He can't have all of his army tanks die. He's really doing this to maintain his military strength. Desperate situations call for desperate measures, so that's why Ahab and Obadiah go on this long hike. And this strategy leads to a chance meeting. Verse 7. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? We do not have record of Obadiah ever meeting Elijah before. But he knows of him. In fact, everyone knows of him. This is the prophet who caused the three-year drought. This is the prophet on the most wanted poster stapled all over Israel. Elijah has been hiding for three years. He's a fugitive on the run. There's a bounty on his head. Verse 8, And Elijah answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of, Obed, Ob, the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? Elijah desires an audience with the king. And Obadiah protests. He sees Elijah's command as a death sentence, a suicide mission. Here's the problem I see with your proposal, Elijah. I go tell Ahab I found you and that you want a meeting with him. Then you disappear, and I'm left without hands, maybe without a head. You're going to vanish, just like a magician. Look, look, I don't know where you've been for the last three years, but it's been horrible here. Jezebel couldn't find you. She went on a prophet killing spree, picking them off one by one. I hid a hundred of them in caves. They are still in caves. I sneak food out of the palace and bring it to them. Verse 15, And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Elijah responds, I will not run, I will not hide, I will not disappear, I promise. Even though Elijah's been living in Jezebel's hometown, Ahab and Jezebel could never find him. This is due to God's preserving hand more than Elijah's elusiveness. Elijah had apparently eluded Ahab's officers before. And they said he had supernatural powers, like he became the invisible man. It developed into an ancient urban legend. The spirit swoops Elijah up and moves him from place to place. I give you my word, I will not disappear into thin air. The text says Obadiah feared the Lord. But there were other fears too. He had to subdue the other fears in order to obey God. Elijah eased Obadiah's babbling fears. He put still in Obadiah's soul. Verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Finally, 
the prophet and king have their long-awaited, much-anticipated, widely publicized meeting. In the Hebrew, it's you, the trouble-bringer of Israel. Or you, the chaos-causer to the king. It's a very token-esque way of stating it. You troubler of Israel. Troubler meaning you are preventing success. The success of my reign. You, you troubler. You, you wreak havoc. You troubler. You, you plague. You annoying little pimple. There is a deep human need in all of us to ascribe blame. Whose fault is it? Whose fault that no raindrops have hit my head in over three years? Well, it has to be Elijah's. People are dying because of him. The land is cracking because of him. My army tanks are dying because of him. The famine is his fault. The blame game is as old as the garden. Ahab blames Elijah for everything. He's now the victim. He ignores completely that his sin got him in this mess. He will not take personal responsibility. He gets mad at Elijah for the consequences that his choices brought. He can't see himself or his sin. He can't connect his actions with the current state of trouble. With gritted teeth and a scowl on his face, he says, look who it is. The top troublemaker in Israel. Verse 18. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the bells. There's a bit of name calling back and forth. Your mama. No, your mama. That goes on for a while. Me, the troublemaker? That's laughable. Elijah spells out the reason behind the drought. Your sins, Ahab, aroused the wrath of God and caused him to withhold the rain. This is what you get when you abandon Yahweh's commands. From here on out, Elijah steps forward and takes charge because that's what he does. Imperative verbs are used throughout the story. He says in verse 19, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah throws down the gauntlet. He proposes a contest, a rumble on Carmel. This is the best heavyweight bout of all time. The battle of the gods. Let's square off and settle the question once and for all. Who is God? Elijah chooses the destination. Mount Carmel. A high seaside mountain range. This location is where Baal worship was spawned. Kent Hughes calls it Baal's Bluff. Elijah is giving them home court advantage. I'll go to your mountain. I'm going to go to your gym and whoop up on you. I'm going to your house, your backyard. Now, Baal worshipers were salivating at the opportunity to defeat Elijah. And if they can do it on their own home turf, that's even better. They know that mountain like the back of their hands. Like the old Celtics basketball court. The players knew where the dead spots were on the old wood floor. It's nothing like home court advantage. Now, there is a significance in the location. Remember that ancient Near Eastern peoples typically believed that the gods kept their own geographical territories. They were powerless in territories where they were not worshipped. If there was a war, then the winning side said their god won and expanded his territory. Yahweh is about to take a mountain. He's about to take new ground. Prove that he's not limited to one location. Baalism was the state-sponsored religion of not only that mountain, but everywhere around that mountain. Jezebel personally paid the salaries of 
150 false prophets of Baalism. The false prophets eat at her table while the true prophets eat the scraps that Obadiah brings back to the cave. The government funds Baalism and the prophets of Baal's wife, Asherah. Team Elijah, one prophet. Team Baal, 850 prophets. Imagine a football game with just you versus 850 bruisers. The odds are not with Elijah. He's at a numerical disadvantage. Elijah is outnumbered. Or is he? Martin Luther said, one with God is a majority. One lone person plus God equals an undefeatable army. Home court advantage, home court referees, home court fans. It's not looking good for Elijah or his God, Yahweh. There is no one wearing Yahweh t-shirts on this mountain. No one holding up Yahweh signs. There are only Baal jerseys and Baal chants and Baal cheerleaders. 850 Baal cheerleaders. But beloved, don't ever forget Yahweh's power has never depended on how many cheerleaders he has. It could be 850 or it could be 8,050. This contest is over before it begins because Yahweh is never outnumbered. Which leads us to our first truth. The majority opinion is often dead wrong. Are you willing to stand alone? The majority opinion is often dead wrong. Are you willing to stand alone? Popularity doesn't determine truth. Popular opinion doesn't reflect reality. Beloved, do you possess a fear of moving toward irrelevance? No one is saying positive things about Elijah on Twitter or CNN. Athanasius, who lived 300 AD, spent a lifetime fighting for the deity of Christ. As he was preparing to go to a debate, a friend said to him, Athanasius, do you not know that the whole world is against you? Athanasius calmly replied, then it is Athanasius against the whole world. We need people who are willing to stand like Elijah and Athanasius. Elijah against the world. The search for green grass. Now, the showdown at Mount Carmel. Verse 20. And Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Notice the word LORD in all caps. When you see that, know that it is the personal name for God. Yahweh. Elijah rips face on the mountain. He's had enough. He's reached his boiling point. He looks at all the spectators and asks, how long are you going to continue hobbling between two opinions? Wavering between Baal and Yahweh? Stop sitting on the fence and make a clear choice. Elijah has no room for wavering when it comes to Yahweh. It's decision time. Now is the moment of choosing. There is no room for non-committal in your walk with God. Yahweh demands wholehearted, undivided, complete allegiance. There is no syncretism allowed. You can't merge gods. There is no room for Yahweh and Baal on the throne of your heart. Only one can sit there. Yahweh doesn't accept polytheists. He will not allow you to put him on the shelf with other gods. 
It's him alone or not him at all. He is exclusive. He will tolerate no rivals. Like Jesus will say 1,000 years later, you cannot serve two masters. Elijah looks at the spectators, which are representatives from the ten tribes, and he says, if you are hesitating, stop. Those who limp between two opinions never fall on their knees. They were like the little league boy who moves up into live pitching. He knows if he gets hit with the ball, it's going to hurt. So when he steps into the batter's box and the pitcher releases the ball, the first thing the boy does is take a step back. He's technically still in the batter's box, but he takes a step back. He's not keeping both feet in the box. Those of you here who are wavering between two opinions, I want to lovingly say, step into the pitch or get out of the box. You must lay your yes down. No more on the fence. Pledge your allegiance to God. Take a fastball for him. After Elijah finished ripping face, they are all mute. It was the thinnest silence. But their non-answer was in itself an answer. A refusal to put on Yahweh's jersey. A refusal to burn their big bell foam finger. Stop being indecisive. If Baal be God, follow him and go to hell. This is Elijah's appeal to the undecided. Which brings us to this. Christianity leaves no room for religious neutrality. Christianity leaves no room for religious neutrality. Aren't all religions in the end basically the same, Kyle? We live in this exact moment of radical religious pluralistic propaganda. This text confronts us. It gets in our face and starts ripping. Elijah here is saying, nobody is neutral. There's no such thing as religious neutrality because the claims of the Christian God are claims of exclusivity. Non-Christian. Do you believe that no religion sees completely the big picture? There's truth in all of them, but no one of them sees the whole truth. All religions are equally true, equally valid. You say, well, I'm, I'm neutral. I'm on the fence. I'm hobbling between two opinions. I can't take a position. That is what Elijah says is worse. Elijah is saying there is no neutrality. You can't dare say they are all okay. It is possible for Islam to be true. It is possible for Christianity to be true. Yes, but both cannot be true. If Hinduism is true, Christianity is not. This story presents you with a choice. And the choice is based on the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You can't view this contest and simply conclude there are multiple ways to God. Yahweh will not allow you the comfort of detachment. He calls you to bow, to put on his team jersey, to submit to his commands. Verse 22. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450, or 450 men. What he's saying here, he, he's the only apostle visibly opposing the Baal machine. The only one publicly taking a stand. Verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. 
And the, and the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. In other words, if this is a draft, you got first pick, Ahab. Choose the beef. Do you want ribeye, filet mignon, New York strip, sirloin? Do you want this beef cow or that beef cow? I'll take the scrubs and beat you. The bench warmers. I'll take the cow picked last and win. Elijah lays out the ground rules. Don't ignite it yourself. They're in a drought. It's pretty easy to start a fire in a drought. A small cigarette can do it. Verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them. And they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. I find it interesting that Baal can end this without Yahweh getting a chance. It's the first to score. You don't get to match it. If Baal brings down fire, Yahweh doesn't get a chance to match him. This isn't soccer. Baal is the bookie's favorite. How will Baal light the fire? Will he come down and rub two sticks together? Will he come out with some matches? One pastor shared a discovery written in Ugaritic, which tells it all. It says, and I quote, Baal throws flashes of lightning to the earth. The storm god can send a lightning bolt to start the fire. Elijah and his god Yahweh are not only playing on an away field, but they're also playing Baal's favorite game, sending lightning from heaven. The praying begins along with the ritual and liturgical elements that are supposed to get Baal to respond. They have been at it for hours now, crying out for their God to answer their prayer. This mention of limping around the altar, scholars tell us, is a ritual dance. Some say the dance looked like limping or hopping or hobbling. We are witnessing the dance of the prophets of Baal dancing wildly around the altar. It would have included musical instruments and song. That's a party. It's a party on Mount Carmel. Gyrating prophets circle the Baal altar. They are burning calories, but they are not burning a hole through heaven. They dance for their God to no avail. Their grotesque dance continues until noon when Elijah... Well, let me just read it. Verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now, I like this. Elijah is smack-talking. Elijah watches the dance party until noon, then he verbally dances. He mocks them. He talks junk. He's ridiculing their God. These are biting, sarcastic burns. Maybe your God is musing. He's busy in thought. He's got his hand on his face like this, thinking deeply about something. Maybe he's having a snooze, a little siesta. He should have set his alarm clock. He's like a bear hibernating. He's a heavy sleeper. How long will he be out? Maybe he's gone on a journey to the store to buy some Doritos and a chocolate bar. Or perhaps he's defecating. Yes, that's it. He's in the bathroom. He ate some spicy food. Now, church, I'm going to stop here and say, that's real classy, Elijah. That's really taking the high road, Elijah. There are children around, Elijah. You've got a potty mouth, Elijah. Then Elijah would look at me in disgust and say, learn to grow a beard. <laughs> anyway, 
Elijah's mockery played off their theology. In pagan mythology, they actually believed their God slept and performed other human activities like some of the ones mentioned. According to Canaanite mythology, Baal did make an annual journey. He went away. This is holy sarcasm mocking their attempt to elicit some action from their God. This is nothing short of taunting. This would get you punched in the mouth in a pickup game. Elijah would not fit well in a society that demanded respect of all religions. He says everything outside of Yahwehism is a farce. He wants to demonstrate the utter foolishness of every other religion. Elijah would be too brass for our pulpits today. But maybe that's not a good thing. Are you willing to say to those in false religions, you are attempting to arouse a sleeping God. There is nobody listening to you. All this praying, all this activity is useless. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. They are hooping and hollering. It's reaching a feverish pitch. It's turned into chaos, ecstatic frenzy. They lose control. It's total madness. They become fanatics. Hysteria erupts. They are ranting and they are raving. They have worked themselves into a prophetic frenzy. In a moment of great distress, an expression of their extreme grief, they begin to cut themselves. There is blood all over the altar. But nothing is happening. That blood does nothing. That blood is silent. That blood can't plea. That blood produces zilch. That blood accomplishes nothing. That blood can't bring anything down. Which leads us to a helpful reminder. You don't have to cut yourself. Jesus was cut for you. You don't have to cut yourself. Jesus was cut for you. Now you may be repulsed by self-mutilation. But there are religions today that attempt to get God's attention by causing some bodily harm. There are many people who, in an attempt to absolve the guilt they feel, cut themselves. Self-mutilation is never godly. God never tells you to do that. Satan does. Leviticus 19.28, do not cut yourselves. It is not your body to cut. God owns it. Blood has already been spilled. Jesus' blood. Every other, every other God will make your blood run. Jesus makes his blood run for you. We don't bleed for him. He bleeds for us. When his blood is spread over the altar, something happens. His blood isn't silent. His blood speaks. His blood pleads. His blood accomplishes something. The salvation of the redeemed. His blood brought something down. Forgiveness of sins. Verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The cacophony grows until the clock runs out. They carried on their liturgical fanaticism for four to five hours. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. The ancient altar of Yahweh now lies in ruins. And Elijah begins to repair it. The dilapidated state of the altar mirrored the dilapidated state of true worship in the land. Maybe Jezebel's rampage during it, she, she broke down this altar. The, the Baal-inspired assault resulted in dead prophets and old broken down altars. 
Elijah builds the altar with 12 stones. The 12 stones represent true Israel. He's reminding them who, to whom they belong. He's reminding them of their heritage. They may be split 10 and 2 right now, but they are God's 12 tribes. Verse 31. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of wood, two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Elijah is going out of his way to make things difficult for Yahweh to win this contest. He's stacking the deck against himself. Before my grandparents died, we would gather every Thanksgiving and put our names in a bowl and each person would choose one piece of the paper. We couldn't show it to anyone the name on the paper indicated who we would buy a present for a month later at Christmas. One year, my mom switched all the pieces of paper to, to pieces of paper that only had her name on it. So 45 people were all to buy my mom a present. That's called stacking the deck. Elijah stacked the deck against himself. The wood and the sacrifice are doused in water. This is very unflammable. Not only are the odds 850 to 1, it is dry wood versus soaked wood. Dry bull versus soaked bull. He's loading the dice against himself. It's hard to burn wet wood. And you might wonder, as I did, where did they retrieve this water during a drought? Remember when I said Mount Carmel was a seaside mountain ridge? They took trips up and down the mountain to fill buckets with Mediterranean seawater. One barrel of water poured over the sacrifice. Elijah says, get another. Second barrel of water drenches the altar. Elijah says, get another. Third barrel douses the animal and the altar. Elijah is insisting on making it as difficult as possible. But this handicap is no problem for God. God can light wet wood. Verse 36 and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah doesn't dance. He doesn't mutilate. He doesn't shout. He prays. At three o'clock at the time of evening sacrifice down in Jerusalem, notice the simple prayer contrasted with the long prayers of the other side. Kent Hughes points out this is about a 30-second prayer. You can read it and time it later. A five- to six-hour prayer compared to a 30-second prayer. Prayers aren't measured on their length or fluency or smoothness or volume or artistic flair. The guarantee that your prayers are heard depends on if you are praying to the right God. The power of prayer doesn't lie in the prayer itself, but, in, but into the one to whom it is addressed. Tony Morita said, and I quote, You can pray nine times a day, facing any direction you want, be dressed with religious garb, and have incense and candles and more, but if you aren't praying to the God of Elijah, you are engaging in spiritual futility. End quote. The prophets of Baal, I mean, <laughs> they put on quite a show. The prophet of God, he seems a little boring. Which reminds us that religious frenzy isn't necessarily a sign of spiritual life. 
religious frenzy isn't necessarily a sign of spiritual life. They work themselves into a feverish pitch. God isn't impressed by pandemonium. You can manipulate people with gimmicks, but God stays unmoved. Blood everywhere, excitement everywhere, but God never lit their fire. We do not try to manipulate God by working ourselves up into a frenzy. That's not what we do in corporate worship. You don't check your brain at the door and worship. These people were high on religious fervor. Their emotions were engaged. They were sincere. But none of it was true worship. The Australian John Woodhouse reminds us, and this is for Christians, that our busyness is no different than Baalism. Our busyness is no different than Baalism. Churches fill their calendars with programs and start new ministry after new ministry after new ministry. These are all good things. Unless we think that our busyness in these areas makes God come down. One of my old profs in seminary said, let us be reminded that long worship services do not necessarily imply a powerful worship service. I take that personal. I'm offended at that. I just, I stopped the quote. He wasn't finished, but it hit me in a wrong way. All right, he says, let us be reminded that a long worship service doesn't necessarily imply a powerful worship service. These prophets went on for hours, but they were wasting their breath and their time. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell <laughs> and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Fire attests to God's divine approval. How hot must it have been to burn, to burn up stones? When the fire falls, everyone hits the deck. The smoke clears. The people are face down. Yahweh stole Baal's water for three and a half years. Now he's just stolen Baal's lightning. Add all of that up, and he's stolen Baal's thunder. Verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is pleasant. Corral the pagan prophets, boys. It's time for an old-fashioned execution. Elijah is cutting out the cancer. Down in the valley, the enemies he will slaughter. If you, think, if you think idolatry is not that big of a deal, holding to another religion besides Christianity is not that big of a deal, consider Yahweh's violence against the promoters of false religion. Let me remind you, God is not civilized. He cannot be tamed. Now, this always results in moral hysteria. Well, how, how could God do this? That is so mean. That is so cruel. This, this is another Old Testament savage gore problem. It was a beautiful day up until this point. Why did you have to go and do that, Elijah? Some will say this is wrong. That Elijah got caught up in the euphoria of the moment. I don't think so. Deuteronomy 13, Moses commanded the slaughter of prophets who led the nation astray. Elijah is simply carrying out Deuteronomy 13 sanctions. My question to you is, should we do this with our false teachers? Mormonism, JW, Scientology, prosperity gospel, liberation theology? How do we eradicate bad doctrine? With the sword? No. We are not Old Testament Israel. We are not under the law of Moses as they. You don't take false teachers to the valley. God will. The eternal valley. Verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. 
For there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the Mount of Carmel. To the top of the Mount of Carmel. And he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. He's still calling the shots. Elijah tells Ahab to anticipate pelting rain. Now that Baal has been discredited openly, unmistakably, publicly, embarrassingly, decisively, in living color, and on live stream, no one will think that he sent the rain when the rain comes. They will know that Yahweh rules the rain. It appears King Ahab is eating a meal and Elijah goes back to prayer. Ahab goes to a celebration. Elijah goes to intercession. Ahab gets invited up on the top of the mountain to break the bread and drink the wine of God. We will discover next week you can sit at God's table and partake of his elements. But that doesn't make you one of his. Elijah hears the sound of heavy rain. Yet no cloud in the sky. Elijah tells an assistant to ascend even higher to one of the peaks and look for clouds. They hadn't seen clouds in the sky for three and a half years. Most people forgot what they looked like. Time after time, the assistant came back. No cloud, no cloud, no cloud, no cloud. Until the seventh time, the assistant saw a little cloud the size of a hand. It's coming. The rain is coming. By the hand of God. Elijah is putting on his raincoat. He, he's opening his umbrella. Ahab is informed. And he quickly stuffs his face with the last few bite, bites. Crumbs dribbling off his lips. And he packs up in a hurry. The little cloud becomes larger and darker. Ahab's chariot could bog down in the valley below during the torrential downpour. He better get moving. His chariot must travel 18 miles with dehydrated horses through increasingly sloppy mud and across the soon-to-be swelling dry wadis. The creek is going to rise. You better get home before it does. Suddenly, thunder and flash flooding. The water races to the valley. The thirsty land slurps up the heavenly liquid. Within a few short days, the ground will be teeming with green sheets. The rainmaker makes it rain. Ahab is en route to home, fleeing the heavy rainstorm. He's headed home to his wife, Jezebel. She's in the royal estate awaiting the outcome. Those 850 prophets were like children to her. She will soon discover what happened to them. She's expecting news of triumph. The bedroom light is on. Jezebel is waiting. Verse 46. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. <laughs> now this is wild. Elijah outruns Ahab's chariot. You will have no problem believing this if you can believe the fire from heaven part. If God can make a donkey talk, he can make a prophet run. Notice the contrast in the passage. Baal's prophets limping. God's prophet running. Now, let's gather up some truths and meditate on them before we go home. There are, there are four or five. I got a lot. I don't know if I'm going to give them all to you. Here's the first. God gave us the Elijah story. That the nations might stand in awe of the God who answers by fire. God gave us the Elijah story that the, the nations might stand in awe of the God who answers by fire. You call upon the name of your God and I'll call upon the name of, uh, of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. This is not a tale, a fable, or a legend. This is history. Not invented history, but recorded history. Do not toy with God. We find in our story a category-shattering extreme God. You experience the godness of God on Mount Carmel. And this is not the only time he will rain down fire. He shall do it again on all those who reject his godness. What happened in our text happens all throughout your Old Testament. 
God opening the eyes of the pagan nations. He does it by demonstrating his power over their gods. This is the Exodus story represented. I'm just going to give all of them to you. I'm faster than I thought I was. We still have another hour here. All right, some more. Jesus' half-brother wants you to leave the Elijah story encouraged to pray. Jesus' half-brother wants you to leave the Elijah story encouraged to pray. Now, I would, have never, I would have never naturally gone to this application unless the New Testament had the application. I told uh, Pastor Barry that, and he said, well, your applicator is broken. And I said, it sure is. So I'm going to have to give you this one because this is how the New Testament applies this story. See, this is really a contest on whose God answers prayer. Whoever sends the fire answers the prayer. James, Jesus' half-brother, preached this exact same story I preached to you. He did it a little shorter, but he did it in chapter 5 of the book bearing his name. He said, I'm going to go through his whole sermon here. It's two verses. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three, three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. When James studied, the, studied Elijah's life, the one thing that jumped out to him was his prayer life. Now, we have studied his fire prayer and his rain prayer. We can learn from this. Pray like Elijah, humbly. We are reminded Elijah wasn't a superhero or a warrior. He was a helpless man like us. Prayer is most humiliating work. Sometimes prayer is relatively effortless, sometimes agonizing, but always humbling. Pray like Elijah, humbly. Pray like Elijah, persistently. His prayer for fire was answered immediately. His prayer for rain required persistence. Six times he prayed and there was no cloud until the seventh time. Pray like Elijah humbly. Pray like Elijah persistently. Pray like Elijah specifically. When God, wants, when God wants to do something, he leads his people to pray it. Elijah prayed in verse 37 of our text, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Do you, like Elijah, pray for the hearts of rebels to turn back to God? C.S. Lewis said, I have two lists of names in my prayers. Those for whose conversions I pray and those for whose conversions I give thanks. The little trickle and transference from list A to list B is a great comfort. Pray like Elijah, pray scripture. Elijah was praying according to the promises of God. God told Elijah it would, it would stop raining, and God told Elijah it would start raining. He's praying the words of God. The promises of God do not make prayer unnecessary. It makes prayer mandatory. It's as if the promise awaits a prayer. Fill your prayers, church, with the word of God. God's promises are an invitation to prayer. Thirdly, let's pull this from the story. Your bell will say, dance for me, perform for me. However, Jesus gives you freely what every other God makes you try to earn by your performance. That's a lot, I know. Your bell will say, dance for me, perform for me. However, Jesus gives you freely what every other God makes you try to earn by your performance. You might say, I don't worship Baal, Kyle. Yes, but there are other false gods we bow before. There's uncivilized paganism, what they did, and civilized paganism, what we do. You can take anything and make it a bell. There are rain bells, crop bells, and beauty bells, and money bells, and power bells, and success bells, and popularity bells. False gods require strenuous dancing to please them. Dance for me. Cut yourself for me. Spill your blood for me. 
If you want to find your idols, look for the dancing. Look for the slashing. What makes you perform? Bells demand our all, but they cannot answer our prayer. I danced for him. Why didn't he answer me? When you call out to, to other gods, there is no attentiveness, no care, no response. When you call out to Yahweh, he's never away. He never sleeps. He, he's attentive. He, he's caring. You don't have to perform to please him. You don't have to dance for him. Friend, now that your gods have failed you, come to Yahweh in repentance and faith. Now let's think about this. How should we think about Yahweh? How should we think about Obadiah? How should we think about Obadiah? Charles Spurgeon, who pastored in London, one of my dead heroes, he said, I suspect that Elijah did not think very much of Obadiah. And I would add, I suspect that Obadiah did not think very much of Elijah. After all of these careful years of hidden faithfulness, is Obadiah now going to be slaughtered because of some leather-lunged prophet? Elijah thought Obadiah was a compromiser, and Obadiah thought Elijah was a bully. These two men do not seem to become close friends. They go about life differently. One quiet, the other risk-taking. Do you go about serving God in an Elijah-like way or an Obadiah-like way? Reform from the inside or reform from the outside? Bold, confrontational, intrusive, or thoughtful, cautious, and restrained? Honestly, for the past two weeks, I've been very uncomfortable discovering an Obadiah among Ahab's court. How have you not witnessed to your boss yet? How does he not know by now that you are a Yahweh follower? How could a genuine saint be so closely associated with a wicked man? How pagan is your boss? Obadiah is a civil servant for one of the worst regimes in human history. Beloved, do you ever get mad when Christians don't take a stand strong enough for you? It seems weak to you, like a compromise to you. That's kind of how I feel about Obadiah. Secret discipleship is not what we need right now. He's a career-protecting, boss-flattering compromiser. But that's not true. When he was finally faced with a decision to lose favor with his boss or be faithful to God, he did choose faithfulness to God. When the loyalties finally competed, he was ultimately loyal to the true God. He wasn't a secret disciple. He risked his life to rescue prophets from the royal clutches. He must have strategically not told his boss about his faith. A.W. Pink said, We should not berate Obadiah because he is not Elijah Jr. One scholar said, Faithfulness is not so dull that it only comes in one flavor. Two different types of personalities, both demonstrating faithfulness to God. Dale Ralph Davis said, The Bible never tells us there is only one kind of faithful servant. It never demands that you be an Elijah clone. Obadiah is not called to stand before the king and the nation. Obadiah is called to rescue some prophets and use the resources available to him. We are not all equally fitted for the same task. They had radically different positions and modes of service. Now, Wearsby, Riken, and Meyer seem to think the stance that Obadiah took was wrong. His hidden faithfulness. Marita, Davis, and Chapman seem to think the stance that he was, that he was faithful in his hidden discipleship in, in a Cory Ten Boom type of way. And if you can't handle the tension in the text, <laughs> you certainly can't handle the tension in our day. Now here's the last one and I'm finished. There is another showdown on another hillside. There is another showdown on another hillside. 
It's not located at an old rugged altar. It's located at an old rugged cross. You know who else, like Elijah, was once called a troublemaker? Jesus Christ. You can find him in the drought or in the fire. Because he took both for you. On the cross there was a drought. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A drought of God's presence. On the cross there was fire. Why did the fire fall on the cross? So that the judgment wouldn't fall on the people he loves. But instead it would fall on the son he loves. Father, this has been quite a text. A bit like drinking from a fire hydrant. There's a lot to swallow. But Lord, it's been good to us. And we've got enough to take home and eat all week long. So help us to do this, Father. Get the glory from this church that you deserve. And the glory from our lives that you deserve. As we sing to you now, would you clothe our words in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that our praise would be acceptable before your throne. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.